the Special Education Podcast. My name is Paul Hubbard, and I have dyslexia and ADHD. As a result, learning has always been a struggle. But now, against all odds, I am a successful special education teacher, presenting my insights from both sides of the coin, giving you a different perspective to help you be a better educator. So join me as I daily put the odd in special education. Hello, this is Paul Hubbard with another special education podcast. Today, we're going to do part two of the three-part series, Working with Paraprofessionals, with our very special guest, Jennifer Hoffaber, who has not only been selected as the Kansas Teacher of the Year, but has over 27 years of teaching experience. I am excited to welcome you back into part two of this incredible interview. I understand that many of you work with paraprofessionals, so I hope you are able to glean some knowledge from our discussion. Speaking of that, let's go ahead and get right into the questions. First question, if you had the opportunity to give yourself a professional development on this topic to yourself as a first-year teacher, what would you have made sure to include in this area of working with paraprofessionals? Well, I would give anything to be able to go back in time and receive some true intentional training on how to train my paraprofessionals using some type of handbook. You know, in college, we're, we're taught how to work with, with kids who have disabilities. And I think any special education teacher, that's innate for them. But what isn't innate for us is working with other adults. And so that was definitely not given to us in college. And from, you know, that was a long time ago. But I think even now, what I'm gathering from teachers who are just graduating or who are just in their first few years of teaching, this is still not something that is taught in college. And as teachers, we're, when, we, when we get our new job, or it's really at the beginning of any school year, we are given a handbook for our school and for our district. And they lay, that handbook lays out the expectations, it lays out schedules, it lays out school procedures and policies. And I know that, at least in my district, the paraprofessionals are included in that conversation. But a special education department doesn't run like a general education um, setting at all. So it's important for us to have our own handbooks with our own expectations and our own procedures and guidelines and to share that with the paraprofessionals. And I wish somebody would have told me this that very first year of teaching. They, I wish they would have told me that it was going to be hard, but it was going to be worth it. And you you could get through those hard times and develop those relationships with those paras so that you're all working on the same page for the benefit of the child. I really like how you put a distinction between special ed and general education because it is different. In fact, it's supposed to be. It's individualized based on the students that are in the classroom, and all students are different. There is not one that is exactly the same. Therefore, as you spread out special education, among multiple cities, states, districts, etc., special education is going to look different for all of them based on the need in that specific district. But that can make it really hard for paraprofessionals because it is so different. There's not a single professional development that exists out there that's going to apply to every paraprofessional in every district. It really does have to be something that's managed by the teacher in that classroom because even within schools, there's a differentiation on how the classroom is run. You know, this this topic of training paraprofessionals came up, um, I don't know, six, seven years ago when I was 
I was named to the teacher of the year team. Um, and the eight of us, we got to spend a year traveling the state and talking to pre-service teachers and educators and, and administrators and legislators. And that's that legislative piece is really where I developed the passion for training other teachers on how to work with their paraprofessionals because I had to have some type of platform to, um, to speak on. And like I said, that the special education piece was kind of a no brainer for me. I, I knew that part of my job. I knew how to teach kids. I knew how to accommodate and differentiate and modify. And so that paraprofessional piece, that adult interaction piece was what was missing for me. And that's when I, I knew that I had to come up with something. I had to give back and to train other teachers how to work with their paraprofessionals because what was, what was going on in my classroom and the struggles that I was having, I knew that other teachers were having them as well. So if I could go back and give anything to myself as a first-year teacher, it would definitely be, definitely be the support of how to work with adults. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because we are going to, at the third part of this interview, reveal your paraprofessional handbook that you've created from scratch over the years. And we're going to show you where you can find that so that you can, if you're a first-year teacher or a experienced teacher who's always struggled in this area, to have that already prepared baseline that you can start developing your own strategies with working with paras. So be sure you tune in for part three. All right, for our next question today, what are your thoughts on the general attitude towards paraprofessionals in the national education system as a whole? What is something that is already done well? And what is something that could be improved? Well, I definitely feel that there's a whole lot more room for improvement than there are positives in this topic. You know, I'm an optimist by nature, but I have not seen much growth in this area within the last two and a half decades. And it's very disheartening, to say the least. I guess one area that is done well is from the parents' side. You know, from my experience, parents hold our parents in high regard and they come to love and to trust them. And, and sometimes even the parent can be seen as the front line when it comes to their child's special education services. And that's totally fine with me. I, I want my parents to make those connections. And I, I wish everyone could see paraprofessionals from the eyes of a parent who, who relies on them to provide their child with the care and the, the education that that they do and how much good they do for those kids. But that definitely, sadly, is not the case um, in most situations. You know, their pay has not increased much at all in my experience over the years. And I feel like, like you said earlier, they aren't seen in a professional light the way that they should be. And so for sure, there still is a lot of work to do. And when I did speak with the legislators in Topeka, it all goes back down to the the local school boards. They're the ones that have to make the decisions of, you know, the, the raises. And, you know, I know, I know my district has done some work in providing um, at least, you know, partial insurance plans to them and things like that. But these people who are in charge, they don't know how important these people are and the role that they play in education. And if they just, you know, could see it, if they could come in, you know, and 
and visit classrooms and just put themselves in the situation, I think that a lot more work could be done. I mean, we still have a long ways to go. I definitely agree about the pay. Paras are paid pennies and dimes. And as you've suggested, they do a lot of the same work as a teacher does. Sure, there's some aspects of the job they don't do, but it's kind of all part of the system being kind of ridiculous. They can't justify paying paras a decent wage because they don't pay teachers a decent wage, and teachers would have a fit if they were being paid the same as a para. So it's created this vicious cycle where there's a lot of people that are paras only temporarily. They're always looking for other jobs. The paras that I had are always looking for other opportunities that paid better. Not so much because they didn't like what they did, but more so because they needed more money on a month-to-month basis. If it were completely up to me, I would say pay paras what teachers are being paid now and pay teachers what they should be paid. But alas, I am not in charge. Even though that was a very necessary question, it's kind of a negative one because there is a lot of work that needs done. So to lighten the mood, I would love it if you could share a personal success story related to the past experience of working with paraprofessionals with me. Well, I've worked with probably 85 different ones, so I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of success stories in there, but for sure the main thing would be the relationships that I've built over the years. You know, I can still run into a para who worked with me 10 or 15 years ago out in public and they're still so happy to see me that you know, they give me a big hug, and it's so heartwarming to know that I treated them in a way that they will always remember. But I guess my biggest success stories would be the paras who have gone on to become teachers. And those are the ones who are the hardest to lose because they leave such big shoes to fill. But on the other hand, you're just so happy that you get to be a part of their story and you coached them and you trained them to fulfill a dream that they might not have ever realized if it hadn't been for you. And one of those paras is, um, her name's Jade, and she's been on my podcast, and she is now, she was a para for for me at another building within the district, but she, um, she became a teacher, and she I got to write, you know, her recommendation letter for um, an an award that our state gives to first year teachers, and so that was amazing that she was nominated for this award by our administration. And as a first year teacher, and I I know that um, a lot of the work that I did in in setting her up for success and helping her. So this, she she knows how to work with all children now. You know, it's a lot of general ed teachers don't have that background of being a special education para. And so she gets to take all of the knowledge that she had as a para and now apply it to her general education classroom. And it's just made her so successful and it's made her such a great teacher. So I guess that would be my biggest personal success story. It is very rewarding to see a para become a teacher because you feel like you've invested into them. And at the very least, after spending time being your para, they still want to be a teacher, so that's a good sign. I just remember the para telling me how much she had learned from me and how grateful she was to have me as her teacher. And that was one of the greatest compliments me as a semi-young teacher could have gotten. Because I have to admit, I'm a little over-invested in my performance, and I always feel like I'm hitting below the bar. 
So hearing that from a para is very special. But I do know that another aspect of working with paras that I've found to be very successful is that a lot of times paras will learn from my lessons, which is super encouraging, not only for me, but for the other students. I remember distinctly teaching a fraction lesson, and one of my paras was just into it and taking notes and answering questions, raising her hand on the prompts I was giving the students. And she came up to me afterwards and said, I get fractions for the first time. And it was such a joy to experience that. Yeah, definitely. With fractions, actually, as well. You know, they, I think it just wasn't taught to them in a way that, and, and like I said earlier, special educators have a way of, you know, wording things and changing things and modifying things to make it make sense. And if they had only had that instruction, you know, way back then, they would have got it then. But yeah, it's kind of funny to watch their faces, you know, light up like, oh my gosh, I, I finally learned this. And we as teachers can take some solace in the fact that somebody learned something in our room today, at least, which is always nice. Well, we have one more question for today's episodes. Remember, we have one more episode after this, part three, where we will be talking about some of the resources. Before this last question, we have a really important question. What do you do when a para isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing or aren't following the guidelines, aren't showing up on time, aren't teaching in a way that's congruent with the curriculum? How do you handle those tough conversations with paraprofessionals? Well, this was definitely something that I had to learn. I used to avoid it at any cost. I used to avoid it to the cost of my sanity, to of my, you know, mental health, I would I would go home and, you know, cry about it or complain about it to my husband that I because I was scared. I was scared to have those conversations and I call them courageous conversations. Have you ever heard the saying eat the frog? I believe I have. I believe I actually heard it from your podcast. It's basically just saying that you're, you're just going to eat the frog. You're going to get the hardest part of your day out of the way quickly so that you don't have to absorb the rest of your day and let it consume your mind. And so I've taken that mentality and I just, I just do it. I just have those courageous conversations. And you know, you always build them up into your, in your mind so much bigger than they, they are when they actually have to happen. But I feel like the older that I've gotten the easier that this has gotten for sure, but it's something that I've had to work hard at. You know, I don't like conflict and especially when it's face to face, but I've learned that just, you know, getting in there, having that conversation and, you know, approaching it with maybe like a sentence starter. I actually have a, a product in my TPD store that is, you know, um, courageous conversation, sentence starters where, you know, Hey, can we chat about this? Or, I noticed this, but, you know, and you're just, you're just diving right into it. And you're, it's, you're letting them know that they're not in trouble. They're not um, going to get fired over this. You're just, it's just something that we need to talk about, something that we need to improve on. And, and then once you have that conversation, just, just drop it, you know, don't, don't let it expand. Don't let it become bigger than it is. You know, I really like that analogy. It makes me think of when I spend Christmas with my in-laws. They always do like a fear factor challenge and it's bugs, it's spicy peppers, etc. And it's always easier to just get it over with. And I think it's very similar with these courageous conversations. I think we prolong 
the process longer than we should. And that's just giving our brain more time to think about why we shouldn't. When if we just did it and got it over with, then we wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. And in addition to that, the likelihood is that whatever they're doing is something they're not aware of, something they haven't been taught. You know, it's a different kind of conversation when you have someone who repeats the offense even though they know what they're doing is not right. That responsibility doesn't fall so much on the teacher, more on the administration at that point. But there's a good chance that the pairs just don't know they're doing something that's not correct. That's part of the process of working with other professionals, is if something isn't done the way that you intend them to do it, they're not going to know unless you tell them. And it's not really their fault that they don't know. It's no one's fault, really. You know that the people have, I don't know, I've just noticed this within the last couple of years that everyone always says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, they're always apologizing for something. And I tell my parents, I, I don't, I don't need you to apologize. I, I, you know, together we can fix this together. We can learn, you know, it's just everything in life is a learning opportunity. And I love to learn. I love to learn new things. and I love to um, grow professionally and personally. And so I want them to want that as well. And I want them to understand that just because I'm correcting them on something, it's, it's not the end of the world. You know, we're, we're going to learn together. We're going to move on. You know, one of the things that I think might help with that is the philosophy I use for my students. I don't hide mistakes that I make in front of the class. I don't put the blame on someone else or something else. I own up to it right in front of everybody because for kids who make a lot of mistakes, they need to learn that it's okay to make mistakes. And I think that would help conversations with paraprofessionals if they see you admitting your mistakes and your faults and creating an environment where no one's perfect, but it's okay anyways. I think that goes a long way into creating a coaching environment, an example that it's okay to make mistakes. It's not the end of the world that they made a mistake. But we need to learn from it. We need to grow from it. Yeah, exactly. I just pointing out that no one is perfect. That's very important. And then having those tough conversations, those courageous conversations, like we mentioned earlier, have those in private. You're never going to want to have one of those in front of a child or in front of another adult. So if you're if they're working with a child and say that they're, you know, kind of leading them down the a path, you know, they're trying to work with them on I don't know, multiplication for some, for an example, and they're, they're doing it incorrectly, I would just, I would stop the activity and say, hey, let's move on. Let's have, you know, the kid do such and such right now. And then after that, that situation has ended, then I would say, hey, I stopped that lesson because of this. And, you know, I, I want to make sure that you're doing it right so that you can teach him correctly. I never would stop and say, hey, you're not doing it right in front of him. And then definitely in, in front of another adult is just, I don't know. I, I had an administrator in my very first or second year of teaching who just completely lost it on me and my co-teacher. And it was in front of parents and teachers and students. And it was the most, one of the most embarrassing things I've ever experienced in my life and humiliating and just degrading. And I, I never, ever want to put one of my parents in that situation. Yes, I remember you telling that story in one of your early episodes um, when I first started listening to your podcast. I can attest to that. I also had an administrator that did not do that very well, and uh, it really affected me. In fact, it led to me finding a new school, 
And I think that that is unfortunate when someone, a professional, can't act professional and handle a situation professionally. And I think that we have a expectation as a teacher to do it and be an example for it uh, with our paras and students, but mainly with our paras. But unfortunately, we are over time on this week's episode, so we've got to cut it off here. But don't worry, we have more questions on part three, so be sure to tune in for part three of this amazing look at working with paraprofessionals. As always, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Special Education. And if you have questions or comments about today's episode, you can email me at specialeducation at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this in-depth conversation with Jennifer. And I am excited for the conclusion next week. Be sure to tune in.